Well, as we do turn to the Word of God, uh, the message that we have for today is entitled, Do You Fear the Lord? Part 1. Do you fear the Lord? We are accustomed at this church. We are passionately committed to what we call, understand to be, biblical exposition, where we proclaim the Word of God verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, whether we're working through a book or, or focusing in on a particular section of Scripture. Uh, Today and next week is going to be a little different. It's going to be what's called a topical exposition. Topical exposition. Sometimes when you hear a topical sermon or message, really what it is is what does the pastor think about a topic? And every once in a while you might hear a Bible verse. Uh, My hope is what you hear today is not what Gabe thinks about the fear of the Lord, but what the Scripture says about the fear of the Lord, even though we won't be focusing in on just one particular passage. Well, as we've said, today is Reformation Day. It is the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door, which was the church bulletin or the community bulletin board in Wittenberg, Germany. These 95 theses were points for doctrinal debate with the Roman Catholic Church, which Martin Luther was a part of. And he was seeking to restore truth, biblical truth, to the church. He was wanting to reform the church so as not to create division in the church. Martin actually wrote these theses in Latin, uh, which is the language of the academy. He was hoping that the the common folk, the people uh, out in the community, wouldn't be able to read them because he wanted the debate to be centered and focused in among the scholars as They sought to restore truth to the church, but someone translated and distributed the work, and the rest, as they say, is history. Martin Luther was hounded by the Catholic Church and nearly put to death were it not for the last-minute rescue effort by one of his uh, good and powerful friends who hid him in the Wartburg Castle for nearly a year, and his work was prolific. Time does not allow us to rehearse all of the benefits that have come to society and the whole world as a result of the Reformation, but you would do well to read and learn about the array of imperfect men whom the Lord used to bring about a restoration to the authority of Scripture over the Pope, to the doctrine of justification by faith, and other key doctrines that have had uncountable ripple effects in the world. It really cannot be overstated how significant the Reformation was. And if you're not sure who to read about, you can start with uh, the men many of our rooms are named after. Whether it's John Huss, John Knox, John Wycliffe, John Calvin, lots of Johns. Then there, of course, there's Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, just a host uh, of many others. And whenever you think of these men, one of the lesser uh, famous uh, people are their wives. Their wives have a significant testimony. So much church history to to learn and, and appreciate how the Lord has worked. But a massive factor of the Reformation that is really neglected in the study of church history is the reality that while the Reformation was taking place, Europe was being ravaged by one plague after another. In fact, one author states this, If you lived for any stretch of 75 years between 1500 and 1720, and he says a big if, by the way, because most people wouldn't live that long, you would probably spend one-fifth to one-third of your life under plague-related civil ordinances and restrictions, implemented in half-year, excuse me, in plague-related civil ordinances and restrictions, implemented in half-year and years-long stretches. In other words, the things that you and I have been living through these last couple years in terms of distancing and gathering restrictions and other hindrances to our customary, customary lifestyle, these became a normal cycle of life in the church and in Europe for over 200 years. Now, there are many differences between COVID-19 pandemic and the plagues of those years. But one thing I think is helpful to know is that when the plague would hit in the 16th and 17th century, 
it was not uncommon for a quarter of the city to perish. It's been said that every 10 to 15 years, the church would lose about a quarter of its members in a short time due to the plague. Because of that, the reformers and pastors of that era wrote and discussed matters related to the plague. How do we shepherd and lead the church? I found it amazing to learn recently that a lot of the discussions and debates that have been happening among church leaders, whether it's within churches, whether it's national leaders, things like, should we obey civil mandates? Should we mandate that everybody wear a mask, even if the government doesn't? Should we limit the seating capacity? Those kinds of things. Those are the very kinds of debates that the pastors in this era were debating. And like today, they didn't all agree. But there was one matter about which they did agree, and that is this. They agreed that the most important and appropriate response to the plague by every person is to repent and throw themselves on the mercy of Christ for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. This was easy for them to agree on because this is what Jesus taught, right? In Luke 13, some Galilean, Galileans brought some news to Jesus about a group of, of men who had been sacrilegiously and unjustly murdered by the Roman government. And they brought this news to him as if to say, what do you have to say about that, Jesus? And he responded, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, Jesus is saying here that the most important lesson we can learn from unjust murders that we find out about the most important lesson we can learn from fatal accidents that we're aware of, and we could add in plagues and pandemics. The lesson is death awaits us all, and it can come unexpectedly. So repent and get right with God today. And so it was during the 16th and 17th centuries that the plague came and went and came and went and came and went. And every time it came, it, it left a pile of bodies and devastated cities and churches and families. In the United States, COVID-19 has, has resulted in the loss of a population of, of our nation of about 0.2%. In Maryland, it's been 0.17%. But again, in centuries past, cities and churches and nations would lose about 25% of their population to the plague. There was no CDC or WHO to, to track the plague. The reality of germs was not known or understood. And there was little agreement on how to spread or how not to spread the plague. So you never knew when your family member or you yourself would contract the plague, and whether or not you would die from it. But because of those numbers, it was almost expected that in your lifetime, you or a family member or a loved one would perish from the plague. Now, some of this information, historical information, you can find from a, a really a brand new book called Faith in the Time of Plague. Faith in the Time of Plague. It's a collection of writings and sermons from the Reformation era, all related to the plagues of that time. And the compilers of the book um, included in the appendix a sermon by Cyprian, who was the Bishop of Carthage in the third century. Since it wasn't during the Reformation, it wasn't part of the book, it was in the appendix. In this sermon, which is called On Mortality, Cyprian uh, preached in response to the plague that was going on in his time. And summarizing one of the points of that sermon, the authors wrote, trials serve the Christian in revealing the true object of one's faith and the true source of one's hope. 
Listen to this sentence by Cyprian in his sermon. I'll read you the short version, the beginning and the end, so you get the gist, and then the full length so you get the point. The short version of of Cyprian's sentence is, this trial, speaking of the plague, this trial is profitable as proof of faith. Okay, Here's the full sentence. This trial that now the bowels relaxed into constant flux discharged the bodily strength that a fire originating originated in the marrow ferments in the wounds of the fauces, back of the throat, that the intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting, that the eyes are on fire with the injected blood, that in some cases the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off from the weakness arising by the maiming and loss of the body, either the gait or enfeebled, or the hearing is obstructed or the sight darkened, is profitable as proof of faith. He's saying that if you get the plague and your body falls apart in these horrific ways, think of it as an opportunity. An opportunity to demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. He also says, struggle in adversity is the trial of the truth. The tree which is deeply founded in its roots is not moved by the onset of winds. The ship which is compacted of solid timbers is beaten by the waves and is not shattered. When the threshing floor brings out the corn, the strong and robust grains despise the winds, while the empty chaff is carried away by the blast that falls upon it. Well, this principle of trials being a test of faith rises right out of the pages of Scripture where we read in 1 Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. COVID-19 has been a test for all people. It has tested us in many ways. But today, I want to narrow our attention to what I believe is the test at the root of all tests. And that is this. Do you or do you not fear the Lord? Do you or do you not fear the Lord? Nearly two years removed from the beginning of the pandemic, our lives remain altered. Some of us largely live as if there is No pandemic unless we go to a store that requires us to wear a mask. Some of us have more or less returned to normal life, but voluntarily choose to wear a mask in most places. Some of us, by our own choice, continue to live and work in isolation. Some are uh, wrestling with whether to retire early or quit or face being fired for not taking the vaccine. Please hear me. The point of this message is not to say that a right fear of the Lord leads everyone to make the same choices. The fear of the Lord does not mean that everyone makes the same choices. I am only concerned about our choices to the degree, and listen carefully, to the degree that they are driven by a lack of the fear of the Lord. So this message is not aimed at our actions. This message is aimed at our hearts, out of which our actions flow. But sometimes when our hearts change, there's a necessary change in our actions. So my prayer is that you will be open to what the Spirit would say to you in your own heart this morning. There's no more important issue in the Christian life than the fear of the Lord. When we don't fear the Lord, we sin. Every instance of sin in our lives is the direct result of not fearing the Lord. The people of God are commanded time and time again to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy 10.12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul says in verse 20 of that chapter, you shall fear the Lord your God. 
You shall serve Him and cling to Him. You shall swear by His name. Though Israel was a theocracy, the Lord knew that the time would come when they would reject God as king and they would demand from God a king, a human king for themselves. So in anticipation, the Lord established this law for that king to come. This law shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, by observing all the words of this law and these statutes. At the end of conquering the land of Canaan, Joshua gathered the nation together for one last admonition and to call them to fidelity to the Lord. And he said, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Describing that exemplary woman, In Proverbs 31, Solomon writes, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. At the very beginning of Proverbs, we read, and you're probably familiar with this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, you cannot know anything as it is meant to be known unless you first fear the Lord. Well, that's the Old Testament, right? That's Israel. What about us? What about the church? Well, after the conversion of Paul, persecution died down. And it says in Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Reflecting on his suffering as an apostle with an eternal perspective, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And then the apostle Peter, again writing in his first letter, gives this string of commands. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And then finally, after The seven plagues during the tribulation, we read as John observes those who endured singing this song. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So fearing the Lord is not just an Old Testament concept. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. And there is nothing to add to it. There is nothing taking, to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. In other words, divinely woven into the fabric of the universe are dynamics designed to cause all people to fear the Lord. Many of those dynamics are described in Ecclesiastes with the conclusion at the end That when all has been heard, there is nothing left to say except fear God and keep his commandments. For because this applies to every person. Well, the fear of God is modeled by no one other than no one less than the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11 describes 15 characteristics and actions of the Messiah. And two of them are these. He will have a spirit of knowledge and the fear of of the Lord, and also he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, the Gospels don't explicitly say that Jesus feared the Lord, but they describe it as they express how Jesus lived out of the power of the Holy Spirit and he was driven by the will of the Father. And this will give you a little preview as to what it means to fear the Lord. Jesus himself said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Jesus didn't live a self-driven life. He said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Even the words that he spoke were dependent on the father. Again, he said, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. 
Jesus' fear of the Lord was supremely manifested and proven in the garden and on the cross. At the time when he could have been controlled by the fear of suffering, the fear of pain, and the fear of death. Instead, he was controlled by the fear of the Lord as demonstrated by the fact that in the face of the most frightening of circumstances, he humbly submitted to the Father's will. But hold on a second, comes the question. Aren't we supposed to not fear? Doesn't perfect love drive out fear? Well, 1 John 4.18 does say that. But what it means is that perfect love casts out fear that obscures or gets in the way of love. There are many fears that get in the way of love, like the fear of death. But there's also a fear that demonstrates love. For example, if I love my wife truly, I will fear doing anything that would harm her. If I love a good friend truly, I will fear offending them. That kind of fear helps me to love my wife and my friend better. It it draws us closer rather than putting more distance between us. In the same way, if we want to claim that we love God, there are ways in which true love of God will manifest through fearing Him. And so truly fearing God in these ways demonstrate the reality of our love for God. So, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it look like to fear the Lord? How can I know if I am fearing the Lord? If you've been in churches for a while, you've probably heard that the fear of the Lord doesn't mean to be terrified by Him, but rather to reverence and have an awe of God. One writer notes that fear can range from sheer terror on one side of the spectrum to adoration and worship on the other side with reverence being somewhere in the middle. And it's been said that a right fear of the Lord begins with a reverence and moves all the way to the side of worship. Well, I think that's a helpful way to state it, but my concern is that we can use those words and still not really know what does that mean in terms of practical living. So I want to offer you a more of a definition than a list of synonyms. A definition of the fear of the Lord. Here it is. The fear of the Lord is the heart of man being shaped by the heart of God and living in accordance to it. The fear, excuse, yeah, the fear of the Lord is the heart of man being shaped by the heart of God and living in accordance to it. This definition is pregnant with meaning that we'll unpack as we move ahead. But with all of that as an introduction, uh, in order to answer the question of the message, do you fear the Lord? I want to offer you three primary questions to examine your own heart to discern if you are fearing the Lord or if repentance and renewal is needed. Three primary questions. First, is my heart shaped by God's mind? Is my heart shaped by God's mind? Second, is my heart shaped by God's affections? By God's affections. Third, is my heart shaped by God's will? Is my heart shaped by God's will? The mind the affections, and the will. Those are the the three chambers of God's heart. And because we're made in His image, those are the three chambers of our heart as well. Now, we'll cover the first question today and the other two next week, Lord willing. So let's begin by considering, is my heart shaped by God's mind? The mind is where thinking, reasoning, knowing, and other cognitive functions take place. Uh, When we think about what God knows, we use the word omniscience. And omniscience means that God knows himself and all things perfectly. And because God knows all things and himself perfectly, he is omniscient. And because we are finite and incapable of omniscience, what I mean by being shaped by God's mind 
is, is my heart and specifically my mind shaped by what God has revealed to be true about himself and everything about which he has spoken in his word? Now, to be clear, the question is not, do you know everything that God has revealed and understand it and are thus shaped by it, but rather, are you shaped by what you already know and understand, even as you're growing in that knowledge? For our purposes today, as we consider that primary question, is my heart shaped by God's mind? I want us to focus our thoughts on four truths about God and reality from his perspective that must shape our mind if we are going to fear the Lord rightly. And we'll put these as questions as well. So here's a kind of a sub-question of, is my heart shaped by God's mind? First of all, is my heart shaped by God's sovereignty? Is my heart shaped by God's sovereignty? To say that God is sovereign is to say that he is in control of everything. And nothing in creation is outside his active control. It's been said that there is no stray molecule in the universe. Nothing can take God by surprise. God only acts. He never reacts. There is no good and there is no evil over which God does not exercise control. In Exodus 4.11, the Lord spoke to Moses through the burning bush saying, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Through Isaiah, the Lord said, That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Again, the Lord says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11 affirms that truth and says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So everything that happens in this world, everything that happens in our own lives that we experience is the direct result of God sovereignly working out his purposes as he moves history forward to its intended end. So both righteous and wicked rulers are under God's control. Your health is under God's control. And you cannot do anything that will take you out from under God's control, nor can anyone else do anything to you that would take you out from under God's control. The people of Israel were not shaped by the reality of God's sovereignty, and thus they did not fear the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah 5, 20-24. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah saying, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so that it cannot pass over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both autumn rain and spring rain, who keeps, us, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. They rejected God's sovereignty, so they did not fear the Lord, and instead they turned to the false gods. They thought the false gods could make them prosper. They thought the false gods could protect them. But as we read in Psalm 115, the Lord is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one from whom all blessings flow. So we can trust our sovereign God to do for us all that he knows is good and necessary for our well-being. Now, God's sovereignty is really only a comfort if we incorporate God's revelation of his character out of which he exerts his sovereignty. God is not capricious or random or arbitrary. 
God's plans and purposes are the outworking of his justice and love and other attributes. So secondly, not only can we ask, is my heart shaped by God's sovereignty? We can ask ourselves, is my heart shaped by God's justice? Our God is just. His judgments are true and all that he does is right. He never turns a blind eye to evil or subverts the cause of justice. Psalm 33, 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 89, verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Or Psalm 111, The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. We go on and on. Consider Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, there are two evidences, or at least two evidences, that you are shaped by the justice of God. One is that you have an increasing hatred for sin. You have an increasing hatred for sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It is the violation of his law. It's the departure from God's perfect standard. The wages of sin is death, Scripture says, because death is the just punishment for those who rebel against an infinitely holy God. If you're a believer, and I trust many of you are, your sin is what made his death on the cross necessary. And so that reality should make us hate our sin. Unbelievers are defined by a lack of fear of the Lord as demonstrated by their love of sin. It says in Romans 3, there is, known, there, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A right fear of the Lord leads to a growing hatred of sin. A second sign that your heart is shaped by God's justice is that you are content to let him execute it rather than seeking vengeance yourself. You're content to let him execute his justice rather than seeking vengeance yourself. Romans 12, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus exemplified this principle as we read in 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, while on the receiving end of false accusations and unjust treatment, Knowing he was being murdered, Jesus chose not to retaliate on the basis that he knew God would repay. What's more, not only did Jesus not retaliate, but in Luke 23, as he hung on that cross, he overcame evil with good by praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the scripture doesn't just say he prayed that once. It says he kept praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Unless you think that only a sinless man could do such a thing, to pray for the forgiveness of their murderers while they are in the act, Stephen imitated his Lord in Acts chapter 7. So what about you? When you're tempted to sin, or when others sin against you, is your heart shaped by the justice of God? Do you have a growing hatred for your sin? 
knowing that it is rebellion against the God who saved you? Is there hidden sin in your life that you think is not a big deal because no one knows about it? Remember the justice of God. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And then when you're sinned against, as we all are all the time, are you content to leave vengeance to the Lord? Are you able, like Christ and like Stephen, to show love to your enemies by praying that the Father would forgive them? Is your heart shaped by God's justice? Well, if we are fearing the Lord, our hearts will be shaped by God's sovereignty, by His justice, and third, by His love. By His love. So we can ask ourselves, is my heart shaped by God's love? There are so many dimensions to this that it could be a series of sermons on its own, but the love of God for His people is His undying, unilateral commitment to work for the good of His people. It's his undying, unilateral commitment to work for the good of his people. And the Lord revealed to Moses that he is abounding in loving kindness. In fact, we learn in Ephesians 3 that the love of Christ is so high and so wide and so deep and so long that we need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit just to comprehend it. The love of God is demonstrated Supremely in the glorious truth that he sent his son to die for us while we were sinners, Romans 5.8. And then John affirms this in his first letter, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the satisfaction of the wrath of God. You and I deserve nothing less than the full fury of the just wrath of God for our uncountable sins against the God who is infinitely holy and who has been nothing but good to us. Consider this. There is no evil man or woman alive today or at all in history, not those who heal who beheaded missionaries, not serial killers, not Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot. There's no evil man or woman, past or present, who has done more evil against humanity than every one of us individually has done evil against God. And though we deserved His infinite wrath, what He gave was His beloved Son who drank to the very last drop the ocean of the wrath of God, so that what would be left for us was not one molecule of the anger of God, but only love and mercy and forgiveness. Remarkably, though his love is demonstrated so supremely, when life gets the slightest bit uncomfortable, we can be tempted to think, Does God really love me? And so he inspired Paul to write in Romans 8, Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you get COVID and end up in the hospital on a ventilator, you are not separated from God's love. Through that trial, he is undyingly and actively working out his commitment for your good. If your child or your parent gets sick or dies, you are no further from God's love than if they were alive and well. God is working out his undying commitment for your good. Whether or not you get the vaccine, whether or not you experience physical trials, whether or not you keep your job, no matter what happens, you will remain at the very center of the love of God. 
In the middle of his deepest sorrows at the complete loss of everything he held dear, Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, This I recall to mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. Jeremiah could have hope because he knew that God's love was not measured by his health or material possessions or national identity or success in life. No, God's love for him was measured by the promises of God, which are unfailing, never ceasing, and new every morning. The Puritan pastor John Owen wrote, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father The greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. When your heart is not shaped by the love of God, you cannot have a right fear of the Lord. The psalmist says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his loving kindness. If your heart is shaped by his love for you, Nothing in this life will be able to move you away from him. Well, there are many more ways in which the attributes of God should shape our hearts to be conformed to the mind of God. Some of them we may look at next week as we look at the affections of God and the will of God. But for now, I want to move to another truth that God knows that should shape our heart. And that is the truth that we are everlasting beings. We are everlasting beings. We are not eternal like God. God has no beginning and no end. We are everlasting beings. We have a beginning, but by God's sustaining power, we will have no end. We are everlasting. Imagine in your mind a rope wrapped around this entire building. And if we quantify eternity as the length of that rope, the length of this life, whether you live 10 years or 100 years, would be less than the first molecule of thread on that rope. Now we can put the question this way, is my heart shaped by eternity? Is my heart shaped by eternity? In his sermon on mortality, Cyprian said, But we who live in hope and believe in God and trust that Christ suffered for for us and rose again, abiding in Christ and through him and in him rising again. Why either are we ourselves unwilling to depart hence from this life? Or do we bewail and grieve our friends when they depart as if they were lost? When Christ himself, our Lord and God, encourages us and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall not die eternally. He also said, He who is to attain to the throne of Christ, to the glory of the heavenly kingdoms, ought not to mourn nor lament, but rather in accordance with the Lord's promise, in accordance with his faith in the truth, to rejoice in this his departure and translation. Now this may be a shocking statement, But it is not the Christian position that we should extend life and health and preserve it at all costs. It is not the Christian position that life and health should be preserved at all costs. Let that sink in for a moment. The gospel message did not stop when Jesus ascended to heaven. It spread throughout the known world because men did not count their lives as dear to themselves. But at the risk of their health and their life, they went out and proclaimed. And ultimately, most of them, all but one, in terms of the apostles, gave their life for Christ. There are generations of believers around the world today who are believers because at some point in the past, there was a missionary or multiple missionaries who did not count their life as worthy of being preserved and saved, but rather believe that it was more important to proclaim the gospel to those who needed it. 
One of my Reformation heroes is William Tyndale, who was the first one to write, uh, translate the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into English. He was strangled to death and then burned at the stake because he wanted to make sure that children and everyone else could read the Bible in their own language, at least in English. During his life, he said, all that I do and suffer is but the way to the reward. He had an eternal perspective. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is to say that there are times when out of the fear of the Lord, we exhibit what, we, what might appear to be a disregard for life and health. But that's just appearances. A true fear of the Lord recognizes that health and life are wrongly considered when limited to our physical body. God is more concerned about the health of our soul than he is about the preservation of our bodies. Paul expressed to the Philippian church in his, uh, in his letter his personal wrestling with whether he should die or keep on living. Now, we don't know what control he had over that decision. But what he said, what he was wrestling with is that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is to say, to live is to live a life in service of Christ, not to live for the sake of living. And to die is exceedingly better because he would be with Christ forever. In other words, his sole purpose in living longer was so that he could serve the Lord and his church. But his heart's desire to depart and be with Christ was shaped by his understanding of eternity. It's not a sin to want to live longer. It's not, a, it's not wrong to uh, be healthy or want to be healthy or want to avoid suffering. But we do have to ask ourselves, do I believe, like Paul, that to depart and be with Christ is far better? Do I believe that it is not death to die, but entrance into glory? And what does my reluctance to enter into glory say about my love for this world over and against Christ? Now, in, in saying all this, you need to hear what I'm saying and not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that life is invaluable and that we shouldn't seek to avoid suffering when we can, to alleviate it when possible, and even in many situations to extend it. Again, my point is not to address actions. My aim is at the heart. Whatever we do is our heart shaped by eternity. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what it will be like to live forever. I remember in youth group when they used transparencies, uh, one of my youth leaders in teaching on heaven or eternity or something, he had a bunch of transparencies that just had the word eternity, you know, just copied all the way down uh, the line through the page. And he's like, you know, this long and then this long and then this long and then this long. Some of you are like, what, what, what's this action? <laughs> That's changing the transparency. We have a hard time understanding eternity, but we can get a taste of what it will be like to live in eternity and to look back on this life. If you're a young person, say, I don't know, 10 to teens, look back on your life and consider how silly you were when at two years old, you screamed your lungs out when another two-year-old took your toy. Or if you're a young Adult, consider how ridiculous it was for you to begrudge your parents when at 12 years old they told you, no, you really do need to go take a shower. <laughs> if you're an adult of any age, consider how much you regret breaking friendships in your younger years over what you now realize are superficial reasons. However far you need to go back in life and re recognize how foolish you were then because of how short life is and how quickly it passes, that gives you a taste 
of how you can use eternity to shape your heart. There are hills worth dying for. There are reasons to live longer. But in eternity, we will likely have a different list of why we should die or live than we have today. So don't wait until then. Learn from God's word. Allow his mind to shape yours so that you can fear the Lord and live according to his heart. Well, we haven't begun to scratch the surface on what it means to be shaped by the mind of Christ as those who are made in God's image and yet that image is marred by sin and as those who are being restored into the image of Christ, our heart must be increasingly shaped by God's heart. Our mind must be increasingly aligned to God's mind. We've considered what that can look like in terms of God's sovereignty and his justice and his love and the reality of eternity. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider God's affections, his desires and his values, and God's will, his commands and his commitments, so that we can be shaped and molded into the heart of God and fear him rightly. As we close, consider this sampling of wisdom from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Commenting on the fear of the Lord as taught in Proverbs, Charles Bridges, pastor of uh, pastor in the 19th century, writes, The fear of the Lord was a lovely grace in the perfect humanity of Jesus. Let it be the test of our predestination to be conformed to his image. Indeed, may our hearts be shaped by his. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we confess openly, honestly, that we are not shaped the way we ought to be or even the way we want to be by your heart. Forgive us for being shaped and molded more into this world and help us by the power of your spirit, by the ministry of the word, by the discipleship of your people to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. May we have a growing knowledge of your mind, what you have revealed about yourself and about this world, about ourselves, so that as we live our lives, we can think and speak and act out of the fear of the Lord. May you be glorified in these things. Work them into our hearts even this day. And may you change us this week into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.